Mr. Tulkinghorn. My lady's cause has been again before the Chancellor, has it, Mr. Tulkinghorn? says Sir Leicester, giving him his hand. Yes, it has been on again today, Mr. Tulkinghorn replies. It would be useless to ask, says my lady, with the dreariness of the place in Lincolnshire still upon her, whether anything has been done. Mr. Tulkinghorn takes out his papers, asks permission to place them on a golden talisman of a table at my lady's elbow, puts on his spectacles, and begins to read by the light of a shaded lamp. In Chancery, between John Jarndyce, who copied that, Mr. Tulkinghorn stops short, surprised by my lady's animation and her unusual tone. Why do you ask? Anything to vary this detestable monotony. Oh, go on, do. Mr. Tulkinghorn reads again. The heat is greater. My lady screens her face. Sir Lester dozes, starts up suddenly, and cries, Eh, what do you say? I say, I'm afraid, says Mr. Tulkinghorn, who has risen hastily, that Lady Dedlock is ill. Faint, my lady murmurs with white lips, only that. But it is like the faintness of death. Don't speak to me, ring, and take me to my room. Mr. Tulkinghorn retires into another chamber, bells ring, feet shuffle and patter, and silence ensues. While silence falls upon the house of Dedlock, is there not another creature in another part of the country whose life will mesh with theirs? Let us allow Esther to recount her story. I have a great deal of difficulty in beginning to write my portion of these pages, for I know I'm not clever. I always knew that. I was brought up from my earliest remembrance by my godmother. At least I only knew her as such. She was a good, good woman. And if she had ever smiled, would have been, I used to think, like an angel. But she never smiled. This made me, I dare say, more timid and retiring than I naturally was. But something happened when I was still quite a little thing that helped it very much. I had never heard my mamma spoken of. I had never heard of my papa either, but I felt more interested about my mamma. It was my birthday. My godmother and I were sitting at the table before the fire. The clock ticked, the fire clicked. Not another sound could be heard in the room or in the house, for I don't know how long. I happened to look timidly up from my stitching across the table at my godmother, and I saw in her face looking gloomily at me. It would have been far, far better, little Esther, that you had had no birthday, that you'd never been born. I broke out crying and sobbing, and I said, Oh, dear Godmother, tell me, pray, do tell me, did Mamma die on my birthday? Standing me before her, she said slowly in a cold, low voice, Your mother, Esther, is your disgrace, and you were hers. The time will come, and soon enough, when you will understand this better, and will feel it, too, as no one save a woman can. I went up to my room and crept to bed, and laid my doll's cheek against mine, wet with tears, and holding that solitary friend upon my bosom, cried myself to sleep. It must have been two years afterwards, when one dreadful night my godmother was laid upon her bed. 
For more than a week she lay there, little altered outwardly, with her old, handsome, resolute frown that I so well knew carved upon her face. On the day after my poor good godmother was buried, a gentleman in black with a white neckcloth appeared. "'My name is Ken,' she said. "'You may remember it, my child, Kendron Carboy, Lincoln's Inn.' Mr. Jarndyce of Bleak House, being aware of the, I would say, desolate position of our young friend, offers to place her where her comfort shall be secured. Now what does our young friend say? Take time, take time. What the destitute subject of such an offer tried to say, I need not repeat. What she felt, and will feel to her dying hour, I could never relate. The coach was at the little lawn gate. We had not come out until we heard the wheels. And thus I left for London with a sorrowful...